0: Ultimately, true acceptance is when our mind does neither, that is to look for something else or resisting, you know, what is coming to our way. In this moment of pause, in this moment of acceptance, letting everything be as it is and then finding no self in the midst of any of this and thereby you feel completely free, which is your natural state, that's, you know, where you want to arrive at.
1: Hello, I'm James Shaheen, and this is Life As It Is. I'm here with my co-host, Sharon Salzberg, and you just heard Haman Sunim. Haman is a Korean Zen monk based in Seoul, where he founded the School for Broken Hearts and the Dharma Illumination Zen Center. In his new book, When Things Don't Go Your Way, Zen Wisdom for Difficult Times, he offers a guide to transforming life's unexpected challenges into opportunities for awakening. In our conversation with Haman, we talk about the importance of learning to welcome unpleasant experiences, how giving up can actually open us to new possibilities, and how we can find happiness when we stop looking for it. Plus, Haman leads us in a guided meditation. So here's our conversation with Haman Sunim. Okay, so I'm here with Haman Sunim and my co-host Sharon Salzberg. Great to be with you both. Thank Thank you
0: for inviting me.
1: It's great to be here. We're here to talk about your new book, When Things Don't Go Your Ways and Wisdom for Difficult Times. To start, can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it?
0: Well, things didn't go like the way I planned it, (laughs) so (laughs) that's why I had to write this about three years ago, I had some very challenging experience. I started the School for Broken Heart, and also I was in the process of making meditation app. And in order to let people know what I was doing, I appeared on TV, Korean television show. And then, you know, shortly after, I was pretty much attacked by many different YouTubers in Korea and which was very difficult. And especially one of them was one of my Buddhist monastics, like somebody I knew very well. He was publicly denouncing me. And so that experience was quite traumatic for me because I had to pause all the work that I did and then go back to my beginner's mind and try to really look into my own shadow that maybe I wasn't aware of. This was the moment where rubber hits the road. You know, is that the right expression?
1: Where the rubber meets the road, yes.
0: Yeah, rubber meets the road, yes. So all the things that I, you know, study and practice, what do I do? Especially, you know, I was founder of School for Broken Hearts in Seoul, and I find myself in a desperate need to be healed, my heart. And in that process, I was able to reflect and try to meditate on many issues, not just my own, but also a lot of people around me telling me about how lonely they feel, rejections they often come across, the feeling of unworthiness, as well as meeting with uncertainty in life and jealousy as well. So I dig deeper into my own past experience, and try to impart some of the lessons, and hopefully readers who gets to read it gets to receive some benefit of finding
1: resilience and reclaiming joy. Just so our listeners understand a little bit better, you were the subject of a very public attack in Korea, and you were accused of living a life of luxury, and most of those stories were manufactured. For instance, they said you had a Ferrari, and you don't even have a driver's license in Korea. So you withstood all of that with some silence and stoicism, but you describe in the book how terrible you actually felt. You found yourself feeling all of the things that anyone might feel under public attack. So much of the book focuses on learning to sit with difficult emotions, which you certainly had experience with, especially then. And you share that one of the most challenging emotions for you personally was the fear of abandonment. In fact, you were quite literally abandoned by your own culture in that moment anyway. So can you say more about this fear? How have you learned to work with the fear of abandonment? Right.
0: This was like a learning experience, learning opportunity for me to reflect. I tried to understand what my shadow is. What is that which I was not aware of? Or maybe something that I was too scared to confront. And as I was trying to heal know, my heart, I'm sure you know people who have experienced rejections or people who went through, you know, your heart is being broken. Maybe you can relate to this. I saw a lot of difficult, hardened emotions within my body. So it wasn't enough for me to say, you know, all the things that I see and feel is illusory. It doesn't have its own inherent existence and all the, you know, training, all the cultivation that I did, it helped. But at the same time, it was also equally real that in my body there was a lot of, you know, traumatic art energy. So that has to be released and honor that emotions. In the process of honoring the emotions, I start I a lot <laughs> And talking to my, you know, trusted friends. And also I danced quite a bit actually. You know, I got into dance therapy. And then I started journaling. You know, I ask myself, you know, what am I really afraid of? You know, what is your fear? And then in the beginning, my fear was, can I continue to support? all those people who have been dependent on me for their own livelihood, my parents and my godsons, my assistants and their family, and all the teachers who've been working together for the School for Broken Hearts. And then I asked another deeper question, what are you really afraid of? And then I came across this fear of abandonment deeply rooted in me. And then I realized that this fear of abandonment as a much deeper traumatic experience. And maybe this was an opportunity for me to really take a look at it and to understand what that was all about.
2: Well, I feel like I can relate very clearly to everything you were talking about, the fear of abandonment, which is very strong in me as well. And even to some extent, although I'm sure not to the same extent, this idea of needing to live up to someone else's vision of what I'm supposed to be. and I think we all have elements of being able to relate to these things. So in the start of the book, you pose a question. You say, why are we unhappy? And I'm curious to hear your take on this really universal question. Why do you think we're unhappy? It's because
0: we are looking for something else. <laughs> That's why we are unhappy. We cannot accept as it is. Instead, we are constantly chasing for something else or we are resisting, you know, whatever that comes into our way. So this tendency, either pursuing, looking out to get something that I don't have or resisting what is coming to my way, this two tendency is the very cause of our unhappiness. My first book, The Things You Can See Only When You Slow Down, actually in Korean, original topic was things you can see only when you can pause, actually. Ultimately, true acceptance is when our mind does neither, that is to look for something else or resisting, you know, what is coming to our way. In this moment of pause, in this moment of acceptance, letting everything be as it is, and then finding no self in the midst of any of this, and thereby you feel completely free, which is your natural state, that's you know, where you want to arrive at.
2: So would you describe that pause as the way to break the cycle and learn to practice acceptance?
0: Yes, absolutely. When you say pause, you know, it also means step into the present moment. When we are not pausing, we oftentimes we are caught in thoughts And thereby, we are living in anticipation of something in the future, or you are thinking about what happened in the past. So you're not actually seeing things as it is. If you truly can see things as it is, like everything that appearing in front of your eyes, it spontaneously, magically appears without you doing anything in it. (laughs) But at the same time, it just constantly appears and disappears and appears and disappears. And whatever the thoughts, whatever the trouble you had, it's no longer here. It, it's just, it's gone. You know, it's like insubstantial, you know? So seeing that clearly as it is, it just instantly frees you. But then oftentimes, what happens is we go back to our thoughts and try to live in this, you know, imaginary world where time
2: exists. (laughs) Maybe we need to suffer enough. I mean, I can remember in my early practice, the process really exactly as you describe, you know, and I'd be really burdened by jealousy or something like that. And then I would learn to pay attention to it and it would pass and I would bring it back. I think, where'd that go? You know, like I was uncomfortable with that sense of space or spaciousness and freedom. And I had to kind of grow to be comfortable with that.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. In the midst of all these things was happening around me at that time, you know, like publicly, I also have to really look into what is really here, you know, what's happening. And people imagine things and thereby we suffer more. And we give so much power to the words, you know, thoughts of somebody else. But in fact, if you can just pay attention to what's here, what is real in front of you, there is nothing substantial, nothing that is binding you, you know, never
2: was. He also suggests that gratitude can counter this uh, great tendency toward grasping and resistance. And can you say some more about this? How can gratitude help us out of this cycle?
0: Oh, thank you for the question. Because when you feel grateful, we are not chasing after something. We are content, you know, with what is. And also, we are not resisting when we feel grateful. Even the bad things, what I or what we label as bad things, if once we feel grateful and there's no resistance, and when there's no resistance, there is peace. And that's the quality of your mind I think we all aspire to
1: have. You know, I think of our reactivity, our impulse to move away from something that's unpleasant or move towards something that's pleasant. It's counterintuitive, but doing neither actually takes far less energy and work than simply reacting. Particularly when it comes to unpleasant experiences, you suggest that we can learn to welcome unhappy experiences as a way of reducing the layers of unhappiness we experience. So what are some concrete practices you've developed for welcoming difficult situations?
0: Instead of thinking that, you know, difficult situations are abnormal, it is something that is not supposed to be there in our lives. Just accept the fact that it will be there, you know?
1: right? <laughs> it will be there. I especially like your mantra while brushing your teeth, bring on discomfort, I will accept you gladly.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, my book talk about precisely you know, what to do, and one of the methods is to say, bring it on, you know, all this discomfort, right. because you know, we are inevitably we will have that. And once what we are trying to do here is to reduce the resistance, the energy of resistance, because we suffer to the amount that we resist. It's not necessarily the situation itself that's making us suffer. It is the resistance. To that situation that is making us suffer, so reducing that you know energy of resistance is a key to make us feel more peaceful. And if I I may to add (laughs) one more teaching, that is whether we say it's you know something that we like or something we don't like, you know it's not objective, right? Only when we discern this to be likable or discern it to be unlikable, then these things that is likable or unlikable come to exist. In other words, what gives any things in this life that is pleasant or unpleasant or likable or dislikable, it is our own discernment that allows those things to come to exist. Prior to our discernment, prior to making distinguishing between what is good and what is bad, it was just, it is. (laughs) it was neither good nor bad and only when we make that very much you know subjective discernment which is never objective you know highly subjective based on your past experience whatever the conditioning you have and therefore being able to see clearly the likeable quality and dislikeable quality they do not reside there actually it comes from my own discernment the quality is not inherent in them. We often think that the quality of bad quality is inherent in them. But what we're also forgetting is what those qualities to manifest in my own awareness. It is my own judgment <laughs> that allow that to come to exist. It is the discernment that's doing the work. You know, not so much. There is some you know, objective reality out there that is doing the work.
2: Very much reminds me of um, when you recommend the technique to pay attention to how we view the universe. And as you write, we can decide what kind of universe we would like to live in. So, how can we cultivate trust in the universe and shift from an attitude of scarcity to one of abundance?
0: Yeah, this was a big revelation for me, you know, actually, because even after so many years of meditations, I could not shake off some of the basic human needs. I lived in this fantasy, you know, when I just became a monk, that once you are awakened, you and once you have enlightenment, (laughs) that all of your basic, you know, human needs, you know, whatever that is, it will just all disappear, and you no longer have any kind of attachment to that whatsoever. Well, you know, that's a pure fantasy, you know, (laughs) just because you have this very cognitive wisdom, it doesn't mean that your earthly human needs just all of a sudden disappear. For example, for me, that quality has to do with generational pain. My grandfather and my father's pain, I subconsciously inherit that. My parents, they were born right before the Korean War. So while they were growing up, they didn't have anything. You know, they didn't have enough food. They didn't have any shoes. You know, they didn't have much at all. So they had this mindset of scarcity. That is, uh, the universe is not going to come to help them unless they strive and make their own living. Subconsciously, I also inherit that mindset too. And because of that particular conditioning, I also uh, had this fear of, will I be able to support you know, myself? Like, for example... Ever since I was very young, I had to work really hard and diligently in order to uh, support myself, uh, so to speak. Whereas, you know, when I met my own master, my teacher, Buddhist teacher, and he was exactly the opposite of my father. I was just so surprised because he has a completely different you know, mindset. That is, you know, if he prays to Guanyin, you know, or the Buddha, you know, Whatever he prays, it's going to come to him. And indeed, it, it has come to him, you know. Even, you know, whenever we have, you know, Buddha's birthday, you know, celebration, then he pray that we will have a good weather. And we do have a good weather. <laughs> I was just so amazed that, you know, depending on how you see the universe, you know, whether the universe is benevolent, you know, loving and caring and always trying to help you versus you see your universe uncaring, And you are alone in this universe, and you have to struggle to survive. These two mindsets, you get to choose, you know, how you're going to live your life.
2: You also describe this process as cultivating faith as a topic dear to my heart. So how do you understand even the word faith? I
0: think as we cultivate this mindset of appreciating, you know, what is already here, and then this will generally bring the feeling of gratitude and feeling of beauty in everything and as we are beginning to see more beauty and more gratitude whether as we feel more gratitude then we begin to have a little more faith you know and that is oh actually yeah there are a lot of wonderful things that's happening in my life and as you begin to notice Rather than focusing your mind on what is lacking and you are just zeroing on what you already have and what is already happening in front of you. Right now, there's beautiful snow outside and it's just so lovely to see it. You know, it's so beautiful. And as we are appreciating it, I feel like quite rich already. And so it is the mindset of, you know, appreciation and gratitude that brings more faith. That better things are in you know, a store. It's gonna come in my way, and I can do things meaningful work. That's going to help not only me but also other people around me. And I'm sure you know I'll be able to make very precious connections with all those wonderful people you know, along the way. So as you you know begin to maybe pray for it or you know have faith in it, then it usually materializes. You know like that you know like the way my master you
1: know he has been coming up Eamon talks about the power of learning to say I can't the dangers of pretending to be someone we're not and why he believes beauty can be an antidote to burnout and how silence can be the grounds for freedom For the past 32 years, Tricycle the Buddhist Review has been a leading source of Buddhist news, culture, and conversation. When you become a Tricycle subscriber, you'll enjoy quarterly issues, the print and digital magazine, plus so much more, including monthly Dharma Talk videos, film club screenings, virtual events, online course discounts, and access to our 30-year archive. Subscribe today for as little as $6.99 per month at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now let's get back to our conversation with Haman Sunim. Heyman, we've been talking a lot about the causes of unhappiness, but you also discuss how we can cultivate sustainable happiness, or to quote the novelist Haruki Murakami, small but certain happiness. So first of all, what is small but certain happiness?
0: We can find small but certain happiness. That is, rather than look for something spectacular like getting married or having a child or graduating from your university or you know buying your first home, why don't we just look at little things that makes us feel happy? And if you can truly appreciate those moments, like for example, you can enjoy freshly made coffee, for example, in the morning. And then you actually smell it, you know, appreciate the color, you know, the texture. I mean, it's all little thing. If you actually appreciate it, then you begin to feel happier. So rather than thinking about, you know, what you're supposed to do today or what you want to achieve next year or this year, appreciate what you already have. And this little thing can be smelling coffee or Bunch of small flowers. I love to buy flowers. So, you know, living vivid color in front of you, or, you know, sending, you know, very, you know, caring, you know, message to your friend. And then you usually get back very caring message, feeling of these connections. You know, I love to listen to radio, you know, sometime and especially radio that plays old music. And just listening to old music (laughs) makes me feel really happy. And then, you know, a smell of fireplace. You know, you know, like if you have uh, just a little thing. You know, that's the the snow coming down. You know, from the sky. Like a little things. If you can just appreciate. For me, I love bread. You know, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't eat too much bread, but I do. And, and uh, you know, whenever I discover you know wonderful bakery, oh my gosh! You know, <laughs> you know, I just want to go line up <laughs> and then you know get that bread. You know, and then smell you know, one time I was in Hignahan's wonderful, you know, Plum Village. After like four or five days, the monk brother, you know, Vietnamese monastic brother, he said, mean let's go." We drove to nearby bakery and we had nice coffee and and croissant. He said, "Oh, this is the best croissant! You know, <laughs> this is what the French living is all about." You know, he was talking, and then we are like giggling and you know, like you know, singing together at night, you know, those kind of things. It doesn't have to be spectacular, big things in our life. Just being able to appreciate little things, that's where it happens.
1: I have to say you stoked some craving in me now. I I really want some bread. (laughs) It can be very easy to get caught up in superficial notions of happiness where we think meeting a certain goal or an achievement will bring us the big happiness, the final happiness, but it never lasts. Instead, you suggest that when our mind stops trying to find happiness elsewhere and relaxes in the present moment, we often experience what we have been searching for. So, can you say more about this paradox? By no longer looking, we find ourselves sort of incidentally happy.
0: Right, right. I mean, this was also the case for my spiritual experience. For a long time, I thought that there is such a thing as enlightenment and such a thing as the goal because of this, your incredible you know, immense effort. You'll be able to arrive at the final destination. You know, people might have some goal in life, which is important. I'm not belittling. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any goal. What I'm trying to say is that it was very ironic. As I was cultivating, meditating and all that, I realized that Buddha nature, and especially in Zen traditions, you know, what we talk about, it's not something that you try to gain. <laughs> it is something that you already have in front of you. you know <laughs> you know, the very act of not pursuing that allow you to awaken to your Buddha nature. So all the way up until the very last moment, I guess I didn't have enough you know, faith that it is <laughs> I already have the Buddha nature. Somehow, I felt like I have to strive to get it as though. It is some kind of objective goal, as though it is something in you know, a separate from the reality in front of me. What I'm trying to say is that we can relax into what is here right now, because ultimately, whether you achieve something spectacular and then feel happy or you just feel happy because, you know, you are listening to your favorite music, the quality of your mind is, you know, the same. That is, you are relaxed and you are not pursuing anything else. If you can get to that same mindset, that's, you know, what you are after.
1: Heyman, another aspect of happiness you explore is learning to give up. In fact, that portion of the book we're excerpting in the magazine And it may seem like another paradox. So how can giving up actually be empowering? And how can we cultivate what you call the courage to say, I can't?
0: While growing up, especially in Korea, which is very much, you know, you have to conform to social norm. And because of it, you are expected to go to high school, to go to university you don't have a whole lot of agency. You're not deciding anything. You feel like everything has been already decided for you. But if you can, say, look into yourself, you know, whether what I'm about to do or what I'm asked to do or expected to do is something that is online with my own ability and interest. And if it's not... Can you be courageous to say, this is not going to work for me. I know everybody want me to do this, but I'm sorry, this is not the path for me. So being able to reclaim your agency, it actually will make you feel happier.
1: You say that giving up doesn't mean being passive. It means allowing ourselves to discover a new path. In other words, perhaps we're on the wrong one, given our abilities or inclinations. So how can giving up actually open us to new possibilities?
0: Once we give up, then another path opens up. You. <laughs> so whenever the one door closed, another one opens. The problem is, can you just close the door and you say, okay, yeah, I did my best. For me it was a meditation app. You know, I spent three years, work full time, and I fail. So I close that door. And when that happens, then another door (laughs) opens
1: up. Right. But one of the difficulties in closing the door in in business, they have a phrase called sunk cost bias. You put so much into something that even if it's no longer fruitful, you just can't give it up because you just put so much into it. And how can I really turn away from it? I mean, that's often the obstacle, isn't it? We've gone so far along this path. You went so far along your academic path. And you think, wow, I put so much into this. How do I walk away from it? So how does one walk away from it and say, you know what? That wasn't for me.
0: I think you have to have a conversation with yourself for that. Can I see things as it is rather than expectations? Maybe you'll get better. You know, maybe you'll get better. You know? But even after six months or a year or two years, things are not getting better. Can you accept it as it is rather than you know, hoping that maybe you'll turn around, you'll change I think being able to really see it as it is, that's a key for us to re examine and being able to let go.
2: You also tie happiness to the notion of carencia, a Spanish term of a place of refuge. So what is a carencia and how can we find our own place of refuge?
0: It's a very special thing you can do. That is, in your own town, look for a small corner where you feel very happy. <laughs> it's you begin to you know, see a lot of beauty, or you feel very comfortable. You know, it can be one of the chair that local bookstore has, very comfortable chairs, or it can be one area where you get to see your favorite you know paintings, or it can be your coffee shop that you love. So somewhere where you feel relaxed and happy, try to go there as frequently as you can. If you can find yourself what they call third space. Not quite your home and not exactly your workspace, but somewhere in between where you feel relaxed and you don't have to, you know, obligations for your family or for your coworkers. So find that place and go
2: there as often as you can. I'm curious, can you share a bit about your own Karen
0: Yes, I have a two favorite places. One is my favorite coffee shop in Seoul. <laughs> and there is a precise time that I go. I go there at 10.30 because from 10.30 to 11.30, the coffee shop is very quiet. And from 11.30 onward, all the salarymen rush out and <laughs> they want also coffee. So if I just go there around, you know, 10.30, it's very quiet. And there's a one particular, in you know, a chair, very comfortable and kind of minimalistic, you know, very lovely aroma. The, the peoples are so wonderful and kind, and they bring coffee to you, you know, instead of yelling, you know, people's name. So <laughs> I love that place. And then another place is, of course, Buddhist monastic community. There's one particular in you know, Buddhist temple that I love, and whenever I feel very stressed or overworked, then I need some place to rest, and that's where I go.
2: Seems like this notion of refuge is also tied to beauty, at least for many people. So how can beauty be an antidote to burnout? When we
0: see something beautiful, our habitual tendency to ruminate pause. Let's say you climb up to the beautiful mountains, and you, you know, see the city from the top of the mountain. And what happens? Your minds become very quiet and you are just in awe of the beauty. When we encounter, whether it's a, you know, art, you know, beautiful art, when you see a beautiful art, your mind becomes silent and appreciate what is already here in front of you, and that's where you feel happy.
2: Another major theme of the book is loneliness, which seems to be so pervasive in actually many societies these days. And why do you think people feel so lonely?
0: I think we are lonely because a lot of us are, you know, living in a big city and there are lots of people living alone in the medieval period, you know, or even a hundred years ago, you know, people live in a small community and they knew each other. They could rely on each other, but that is not the case nowadays for many people in living in a large city, especially for me, you know, as a Buddhist monk, I just look into why I am so lonely, look for the cause of loneliness. As I was looking for the cause of loneliness, I realized that whenever there's a thought, that I thought of resisting, resisting to being alone, <laughs> that creates loneliness immediately. Because sometimes when you're alone, you feel free, you're happy. Because you get to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> you don't have to worry about whether your friends is going to agree with the kind of food that you want to have, you know. for example. But when you're alone, you feel free. But at the same time, when this thought of, I do not like it, this feeling of being alone, then this creates the feeling of loneliness immediately. We end up having a very negative experience and we label that as loneliness
2: You quote the psychologist Carl Rogers, who said that we're afraid that if we show others who we really are, they might judge us or even reject us. And of course, it's very, very true. And at the same time, I felt an irony because we started this conversation talking about people judging us or rejecting us when they have no idea who we are and it's all their projection. So kind of sunk either way. But especially in terms of this tendency, you know, when we are afraid to reveal ourselves or, or live as who we are genuinely, authentically, can you say more about this dynamic and how we can counter this fear?
0: I think we want to drop our guard. You know, we want to show up as who we are to other people. And yet we end up just playing the role, somebody at work or mother or whatever the role that you are expected to play. But right behind the roles and there is a different side of you. Which is much more, you know, complicated and messy. And can you actually reveal that side? <laughs> that requires vulnerability in order to be genuinely connected with other people. I think we should be able to risk it and reveal the side that is
1: behind those role, behind those persona. Heyman, you said something very interesting in the book. You write that pretending to be someone we're not causes us a lot of self-loathing. And the reason I found that interesting is that often I think sometimes we pretend to be someone else because of the self-loathing, yet you're identifying one of the primary causes of self-loathing as pretending to be someone we're not, playing that role and denying ourselves. Can you say something about that?
0: Well, people project all kinds of things onto a Buddhist monastics. I'm talking about myself. I remember two months ago, I was in the Netherlands and giving a talk and this wonderful lady, you know, she came and, you know, I mean, you you know, you've been helping me so much and you are wonderful and you're like Buddha. When I heard that, you're like Buddha, I was like, what, I'm like Buddha? (laughs) And, And then I realized that what's happening is this woman is projecting, you know, you know, certain quality idealizing me you know and i felt very uncomfortable you know to be honest <laughs> i have to play you know some of that role in korean buddhist monastic you know community sometime and because it is necessary to receive supports and we have to play a certain role in our sangha but at the same time you know knowing the difference between the sort of Idealized image that people expect you to be versus you know, what you really are, and when you are pretending to be that idealized person, when you know yourself that you are actually not, then that creates the self loathing. That is, you know, I don't feel very comfortable,
1: you know, with this role. Could you say something then about what you refer to the many me's inside of myself? We're talking about playing roles. We're talking about being disingenuous or pretending to be someone we're not. And yet there are many me's within oneself. So in particular, what is the me of me and what is the me of others?
0: Me of me is somebody I like to be, I would like to become. But me of others is that someone other people are expecting me to become. While growing up, our parents are expecting us to behave in a a certain way. And maybe they are expecting us to become a lawyer or doctor or, you know, somebody. And yet you realize that the me of me is saying, that's not what I want. So being able to juggle <laughs> between these two roles, because you don't want to completely ignore me of others either, you know, because if you do that, then your relationship, your family or your coworker, it can get restrained for no good reason. So being able to balance these two, me of me and me of others, that is a path to harmonious and
1: happier life, I believe. Like a happy socialization. Yes. <laughs>
2: So it sounds like one component of bringing ourselves into balance is learning to restore broken or estranged relationships. Can you speak about how mindfulness practice helps us to mend relationships, both with others and also with ourselves? As we are becoming mindful of what we want, like for example,
0: and what the society or what my family expecting me to become, then you can maybe delicately try to balance the two. Doing it in a very wise, in a way, that's not going to you know hurt a lot of people. But at the same time, you are honoring your own needs too. I think that's very important. And as we are, you know, talking truthfully about, you know, our own needs, we can become very mindful of what's happening between me and the person. It can be me and my parents or me and my loved one, you know, me and my child, you know, because sometimes we can just easily become defensive and you know, speak from the perspective of our ego. And then when we do that, once you are mindful of what's happening, then you can actually pause and drop that. You know, once you become mindful of whatever that quality that you are aware of, then there is a power to pause. But when you are not mindful, then subconsciously you will just you know react continuously. So I think mindfulness is very important.
2: And one last question for me. You have a very beautiful phrase. You talk about the power of transparent silence. So what is transparent silence and how can it be the grounds for freedom?
0: The quality of your true nature doesn't have any shape or form. And because it doesn't have any shape or form, another word for that is silent. But at the same time, if you want to portray that visually, I'll say in transparency. So it is nothing there, but at the same time, it's extremely quiet. But it does not mean that you are seeking a quietness, you know, like a, somehow if you imagine enlightenment in a state as though it is just quiet and peaceful state, that is not the case, you know, <laughs> even in the midst of your, you know, miserable experience, your true nature is shining in front of you you know so you're not trying to again grasp you know the peaceful wonderful quality of your mind and then try to resist all this noisy and unpleasant situation that's not the practice you know real practice is to see even in the midst of you know this horrible situation what you uh, subjectively label as such is happening Uh, you still see this amazing transparent awareness that is in front of you. However, this awareness itself, as it does not have any form or any shapes, so I say that it is transparent
1: and silent. Heyman Sunim, thanks so much for joining us. For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of When Things Don't Go Your Way, available now. We like to close these podcasts with a short guided meditation. So I'll hand it over to Haman Sunim. I want you to first sit
3: comfortably and relax your shoulder and relax your head and just feel your body just for one second. And then we're gonna breathe, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Last time, breathing in, breathing out, lead the world as it is, lead the world as it is, you're not trying to get to somewhere, and you're not discerning what is right or wrong, you are just leaving the world as it is, And you are slowly going back to your childhood where you didn't know the language. You go back to maybe one year old. You haven't learned any language. You don't know any words. This feeling of I am here is here. However, you don't know any words. You don't know any language. Everything that you see, feel, is mystery. You are in all of everything, and you don't know anything. You cannot conceptualize anything, and yet you feel this aliveness, this vivid aliveness, that cannot be separated. As I will ask you to open your eyes and see the world as if you are one year old in wonder all And aliveness. See how everything is one. As we do not know any word, we cannot cut out anything, it just appears as one mysterious, alive things. This unnameable wonder is your true nature. This unnameable wonder is your true nature.
1: Thank you. Namaste. Thank you, Heyman Sunim. And thank you, Sharon. Thank you. You've been listening to Life as It Is with Heyman Sunim. To read an excerpt from Heyman's book, visit Trischool.org slash magazine. Trischool is a nonprofit educational organization dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices broadly available. And we are pleased to offer our podcasts freely. If you would like to support the podcast, please consider subscribing to Tricycle or making a donation at tricycle.org slash donate. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep up with the show, you can follow Tricycle Talks wherever you listen to podcasts. Tricycle Talks and Life as It Is are produced by Sarah Fleming and the Podglomerate. I'm James Shaheen, Editor in Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.